Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Gospel of John chapter 17, if you kindly turn there. I told you back in October that I was going to, moving forward, sprinkle in what I, I, we call expositional expository teachings. And we don't do this often, but today I'm going to do it again. I did this in one of the highest texts of Scripture, which is Romans 8, and probably its rival is John 17. And so over a period of four months, you get probably the two pinnacle texts of our, of our Scriptures, and we're going to work through this verse by verse. And so I'd love for you to turn in your Bible if you have it, because that will enable you to walk with me verse by verse in John 17. Let me pray, and we'll get into God's Word this morning. Father, even as we've had uh, many of us a last meal last night, we now sit down to a spiritual meal. We are recalling the night, Lord, in John 17, when you had a meal with your disciples, that what you communicated and shared with them during that time, and what you talked about and instructed them while they were walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, though these things were written long ago, we know they've been recorded for us. And you have superintended the writing of the Scriptures, over 40 authors, 1,500 years. Lord, a supernatural engineering project, so that when we have this Word deposited to us, God, it's the very Word, the inherent Word of the living God. And we believe that. We believe, Lord, that as Peter said, we have great and precious promises to live our life, and that by these promises we can be partakers of the very divine nature. We can enter into a spirit-controlled life. This week, we're going to prove to ourselves as the Spirit of God leads us that our flesh can be, we can say no to it. And that, God, we can submit ourselves, subjugate, submit ourselves to the Spirit as we put these principles by your Spirit, by your grace, into practice into our lives. And so, Lord, I know so many people, even in this room, are new at this. We don't know our way around maybe the much of the Bible or these Bible truths. Many of us have been around a long time, and yet still, God, when we gather together like this, we pray that you're present with the body of Christ. You're the head of the body. We submit to you, and we ask that the different parts of the body called dwelling place would function and operate in a smooth way that glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. John 17, the occasion is Passover. It's the annual time when Jews would gather together to celebrate or commemorate what happened thousands of years before in their history. And you say, what happened in their history? When God delivered their forefathers, a couple million of them, probably right around two million people from the clutches of Egypt, from Pharaoh himself, who persecuted them and brought them through the wilderness to a new land. Now, what the Jews did is every year they gathered back together. Every year they sat down and they had a meal together at Passover. They ate the Passover lamb. They ate all the elements that spoke of their deliverance. There was a lengthy gathering that was kept by a certain order of service known as the Passover Seder, S-E-D-E-R. And they gathered together to eat, and the Jews kept that regularly, annually. So Jesus, being a Jew, did the exact same thing with his disciples. Now, Jesus knows what's about to happen in John 17. They do not. Even though he's told them again and again what's going to happen, the disciples wrestle with it. They they have a hard time believing it. I'm sure that they really didn't believe the the, the rise from the dead part, right? They just knew that what Jesus had said is some bad things are happening, and one of them 
at the table is going to betray them and Peter's going to be denying him and they're all in a fluster. And so after the Passover meal and after Jesus washes their feet in that beautiful servanthood of gesture, that's uh, John 13, to encourage them and con them, he moves into John 14 and he says, let not your hearts be troubled, right? John 14 and 1. And what does he say? You believe in God, so also believe in me. And he says, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you that I may receive you where I am. When all was said and done, the meal was finished. When some of the instruction was over, it's time to stand up. Watch the disciples stand up in the upper room and when they do, they walk down the steps. At the end of chapter 14, it says, He rise. He said, Arise and let us go from here. So the disciples with Jesus, they begin to take a walk through the streets of Jerusalem. Now because it was Passover, in that year it was actually vernal equinox. The moon was full. Walking through Jerusalem on a full moon, I've done it. It's awesome. You can see everything. You can see all the streets. It's tight enough. The old city of David's packed enough. You can see anything you want to see. So they're walking through the city with a full moon. And you get a good view. And as Jesus is walking through the upper city towards the Kidron Valley and the Garden of the Oil Press or Gethsemane, he's going to lead his disciples into. Jesus could look up to his left, right there in the bottom of that valley. He could look up with his, two, his 11 men towards the left. They were coming down the hill, what we call the, the Mount of Olives, and they could see the gates of the temple. Now, the gates of the temple there, which Jesus will enter again when he comes to this earth, were bronze with some gold embossing. And it had an embossment of a vine that represented Israel. Everybody that was walking with Jesus that night knew the symbolism. Let's read it, Isaiah chapter 5. This is what the text says. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. People of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress. So the vineyard of the house of the Lord of hosts is the, his, is, is the, the nation of Israel. The men of Judah are his, what we call, pleasant plant. So they're looking up at that. So Jesus gets all of their eyes, watch this, over to the left. And then he turns back around and his face is lit up with a torch, right? And he says, my father is the vine dresser. John 15 enters. Now they're looking up at the vine on the embossment. He turns and begins to talk to them in the midst of all of these vines, right? These great vines. And he tells them that you are the branches, but my father is the one who tends your life. He'll tend the vineyard. With all of that symbolism, he works his way through those beautiful promises, again, telling them that the Holy Spirit's going to come. He reminds them that the Spirit of God will remind them of what things he said. You go into chapter 16 and you get more instruction as they get closer and closer. And now a couple hundred yards off from the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray himself. But at the end of chapter 16, he says these words. Disciples, in this world you're going to have tribulation. Not just not tonight, not just what's coming for the next few hours. It's going to be tough. Next few hours are going to be the toughest hours of your life. Okay, It's going to get bad for you. You're going to be confused. But I'm not just talking about today. I'm talking about in this world in general, disciples. You're going to have tribulation. But boys, listen to me, boys. I want you to cheer up. I want you to keep your chin high. Why? Be of good cheer because I, and he hasn't even done it yet, have overcome the world. He didn't say, cheer up, boys. You're going to bite the bullet. You're going to have to encourage yourselves in this fast. He didn't say you're going to have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work your way to a happy place so maybe you can overcome too. He just says, I've already overcome it. I've already overcome the world. I've done it for you. Now these great truths you got to know, listen to me, they're not picking up on them. They're not following them. They're not following what Jesus is saying. They're not understanding it. 
they're going to be very, very disheartened in a short period of time. And they're going to tell spin and forget everything he said, just like we do. Say, Craig, why are you bringing that up? I'm bringing that up this morning to encourage you. You're, you're not the only one that feels that way. You think, oh man, I've, I've known the Bible. I've read the Bible. But in a time of crisis and a real crunch, Pastor Greg, I forget those things. I don't know why I do. I told myself last year I wouldn't forget them. I told myself I'd believe them this year. They don't come to mind. I tell spin. My emotions are out of whack. I start doubting the Lord. I want to tell you this morning, you're in great company. You're in the company of Peter and James and John and all of the rest. But we get to chapter 17 and Jesus now begins a prayer. As it opens up, follow with me, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you as you've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to many as you've given him. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. He said, I've glorified you on the earth, Father. I've finished the work you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Church, all I can tell you as I get into this prayer is that we are treading on perhaps the holiest of ground. As Jesus begins in one-on-one communication with his Father, he lifts up his eyes, he lifts up his voice, he begins to talk to his Father just hours before his death. Now this prayer has made an impact on my life like it's made an impact on your life. Through the years, I have resorted to this prayer very frequently. I know it by heart. I spent a lot of time in this passage. But I've always loved what John Knox, not Jonathan Knox, Mossgrove, but John Knox the great Scottish reformer, he used to say about John 17. He said in this chapter, we are in the holy of holies of the scripture itself. He said, if this were a tabernacle or a temple and there were courts, said John Knox, the holy of holies would be the 17th chapter. In fact, John Knox loved it so much. He cherished it so much. He referred to it so much. He memorized it. He quoted it every day that on his deathbed, he had his wife for for like a four-day period read John 17 over and over and over and over again until he passed into eternity. What is John 17? John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Now you go, wait a minute. That's not the Lord's Prayer. I know the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, Luke 11. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I know your Bibles have a little word on top of it that your translator changed it into the Lord's Prayer. But that's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. That's the prayer that Jesus gave the disciples to pray. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he was done praying, the disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray, Lord. Right? When you pray, he said, our Father in heaven, and he walks them through the prayer. We all know that prayer by heart. It's sung at sporting events. It was prayed at DeMar Hamlin's uh, cardiac event just a few Mondays ago. It's prayed on a number of occasions. But that is the prayer that the Lord gave the disciples to prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. John 17 is his own prayer. This is the prayer to his father. It's the longest prayer that we have recorded in the Gospels. Now, what that does not mean is that it's the longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed. Trust me, he prayed much longer ones. He, on many occasions, were told that Jesus went off and spent all night in prayer, like we'll do this Friday. He began his ministry in prayer. He continued his ministry in prayer, and he ended his ministry on prayer. When he's on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them into your hands. I commit my spirit. So much of what Jesus said on the cross was a prayer. 
So much of his life is he began, he continued, and he ended his life in prayer. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. I did the work for you. It's 632 words to be exact. And we have it all in front of us. I love, by the way, that the disciples came to Jesus and they had one request. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. We want to go to your school of ministry. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to walk on water. That looks so cool. I'd love to just show off to my family when we have family picnics at the, at the lake. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to heal. That would be awesome. Isn't it interesting that out of all the things they requested Jesus to teach them, the only thing we are told in the narrative of Scripture is they asked Him to teach them to pray. You say, Craig, why? My guess is they saw the powerful effect of prayer in Jesus' life. It became apparent to them that's the secret sauce. That's how He can do what He does. That's how He continues to wake up and do what he does. That's how he keeps his life going. That's the secret. That's the relationship he has with his father. But using the 632 word prayer, this brings up a question. Now you got to understand, prayer is not just simply talking, uh, talking to God. Prayer is a way of training our eyes to see the whole world differently. Prayer is a way of training our eyes to open up our lives to the good gifts of God that surround us. And those good gifts of God that can surround us each and every day, but until we get into prayerful submission, we can't recognize those good gifts. Prayer opens up our lives, our hearts to a new reality. Now, why, this is a good question, does Jesus need to pray? If Jesus is God, and if Jesus is co-equal with the Father or the second person of the Trinity and he's co-equal with the Father and co-equal with God the Spirit, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, one who would receive worship, we know the thoughts of people who, like he did in the Gospels, he claims to forgive sins, he claims equality with the Father like he so often does. If Jesus, as Paul said, was being in the form of God or having the very nature of God, not thinking equality of God something to be grasped, if that is the Jesus we're dealing with here, the good question before we read this text is, why does he need to pray? It's a great question. It's a question that you and I should wrestle with and wrangle with. Let me answer. While Jesus was on earth, he was in a state of submission to his Father. Absolute submission to the Father. He had all the attributes of deity and human flesh. But you have to understand that Jesus, unlike you, had a unique nature. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully human. He wasn't God with just a make-believe body that wasn't really human. That is Gnosticism. It was human. So Jesus' body had to develop. When you hit his hand or stubbed his toe, it hurts like yours does. He feels just like you feel. If Jesus in the carpentry shop were to miss a hammer and hit his thumb, he'd say, ouch, like you would. He wouldn't go, oh, blessed the Lord, right? He was fully human. He was all there, but he was also fully God at the same time. So Jesus had a unique nature, and we call this unique nature the theanthropic nature of God. You'll see it on the screen behind me. He was theos, that means God. He was anthropos, that means man. Theos, anthropos, theanthropic. He was both fully God and he was fully man. Jesus was theos, right? He was also anthropos, man. And though he was God and proved himself to be God on a variety of occasions by signs and wonders, at the same time he emptied himself. Philippians 2 is the answer. Being in the form of God, thinking robbery equal with God, not something to be held on to. Paul said he emptied himself. In, in, in Greek um, words, this is kenosis, or we call it kenotic Christology. He 
emptied himself of divine privilege. He became like a bondservant serving the Father's will, being able to say, I only do those things which please the Father. I only say the things that the Father says. So he lived, watch this, in voluntary subjugation. He lived in voluntary submission, obedience to the Father, having a human nature at the same time as a divine nature. That's why he could say things like, my Father is greater than I. And you need to have an apologetic response to somebody who's going to ask you questions like that. That's why he could say such things. Now, since then, Jesus has been glorified. He's now ascended this morning to heaven. He's at the right hand of God. But even today... During his humanity, he felt the need to always be in contact with the Father. He would spend all night in prayer, sometimes getting up very early in the morning and dismissing himself, praying till the end. Now, here's the obvious application, right, church? Next slide. If Jesus Christ thought it important to stay in contact with his Father, often by prayer, where in the world does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Is it something we can just sort of toss out or bring in whenever we feel like it's necessary? Like when I'm really in trouble, that's when I'm going to say, oh God. Or will I, like Jesus, make it a constant priority to be connected with the Father? If Jesus knew that need in Himself, then you and I should know and experience that need. Now notice something. The Bible says He lifted up His eyes when He prayed. This is a posture of prayer. This is one of the main postures the Bible speaks about when you, when you pray. Psalm 124 says, I lift up my eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. So the idea of lifting your eyes is simply one's recognition that I'm speaking to someone who's above all, someone who's sovereign over all, whose throne is in heaven, who sees everything going on in earth and in my life. So I'm recognizing authority by looking up. That's one of the postures of prayer. Now let me just tell you something real quick, church, because I'm regularly asked how... Can I, Pastor Craig, structure a 10 to 15 minute time frame of prayer? Let me offer some things to you, okay? This is very practical. I'm going to get extremely practical. If you don't have a prayer life or something that you do daily, multiple times a day, let me offer some real practical steps, okay? If you're trying to establish a life of prayer, three quick elements to consider. Number one, you need to enjoy the simple presence of God in silence with feeling no need to offer words. This is key number one in our world. To enjoy moments of silence without feeling this need that I have to offer language. Number two, second element. I'm going to listen for God's word to me in Scripture for this particular moment. So I'm going to listen to the word of God if I'm reading. I'm going to listen to the word of God if God's speaking for this moment. Number three, I'm just then going to thoughtfully express the thoughts and feelings of my mind and heart. Okay? So if you're going to start a 15-minute time of prayer, I'll tell you how I structure mine. If I'm sitting in my office and it's time for a 15-minute time of prayer, here's what I do. I begin with two minutes of silence. Take your phone, put 15 minutes. Watch it. Two minutes and we'll sit there. It's normally the hardest part for us as Americans. You're not going to feel the need to offer any words to God. You're just going to sit in silence. Okay? Then what I do is I tend to go to the Psalms and I read one to three Psalms, depending on how long the Psalms are. And then I'll jump over to the Gospels and I'll read a few verses, not a chapter, a few verses. I then take my journal and I'll often write a prayer and offer what's in my heart. Now here's the key. The abiding life is the praying life and you can't learn to abide until the real you meets the real God. 
So here's what I challenge people to do. First thing you need to do is you need to offer to God what's really on your heart. So just ask him. Go ahead and ask him because it's already bowling in you anyways. It's already at the forefront of your mind of what you want from him. And don't be ashamed of that. Just go ahead and ask. I'm not saying he's going to answer. Might as well just get it out. So I'm just going to express to him and let me, the real me, meet God in that moment. And then at that time, I'm going to slowly, after a few moments, writing that prayer, I'm just going to close with the disciples' prayer, our Father. Okay? Listen, the goal of prayer is not to do it right. The goal is to keep showing up. Keep showing up. Keep going back to Him. Keep abiding. So here I come back to you again, Lord, whether it's 15 minutes at noon, whether it's at 3 p.m., right, when I'm normally really, really tired at the office, I'm going to structure a 12-minute. Now, what you'll find is if you'll do that faithfully for a few weeks, 15 minutes won't be enough to get all that in. And that's good. It will grow. It will continue to grow. But it's the act of showing up again and again. But something else Jesus did, He didn't just lift up His eyes, He lifted up His voice. The Bible says He prayed out loud. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Well, John 17 is recorded, isn't it? Did we read it? So was he praying under his breath? No, he's not praying under his breath. Disciples wrote it down. They had to hear it to record it. Now you might say, well, you're pushing it there, Pastor Craig. Jesus didn't always pray out loud. Well, he may have prayed on this occasion because he's walking with his disciples to give instruction. He wants them to hear it in an instructive way. Maybe, but I doubt it. You say, why? When he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes off by himself. A stone's throw, the Bible says. And guess what he does? The disciples hear that prayer and they write it down, don't they? Are they next to him when he says, Father, lest not my will be done, but your will be done? No, they're not near him at all, right? They're a stone's throw away. And what's he doing? He's lifting up his voice. So watch this. I know this is so practical, church, but I'm hoping it helps you. Two things for your prayer life. Lift your eyes up and lift your voice up. I've shared you with this before. I'm going to recommend it again. When you pray, pray verbally. Pray out loud. Pray lifting your voice. Here's why. Now, I know you say, well, people think I'm, on, they think, think I'm nuts. Well, perhaps they'll think you're nuts if you're in the wrong context, right? If you're working at Taco Bell and you're talking out loud when you should be saying, what else do you want with your order? Okay, hey, oh, Lord, God, I mean, that, yeah, that will. But, but you can speak out loud. I guarantee you can pray out loud when you're driving in your car. I see people on 92 bopping and weaving. I mean, they're doing everything in their car, right? You pull up, you can, you can communicate out loud. I see people talking on their cell phone out loud. You can pray out loud in your car. And the reason I pray out loud, I don't know about you, but I get easily distracted in prayer. And so this is why I tell you to start with the two minutes of silence because normally in those first two minutes, your mind's instantly going to stop thinking and immediately go to your to-do list. So you have to get your mind back and wait another minute. And if it goes again, you you got to pull your mind back and you got to wait another minute. And so you have to befriend silence. If you want a prayer life, you're going to have to get used to boredom. It's the only way you can be successful in prayer. You have to get to a place where you're silent before God, right? I've caught myself stopping in the middle of a, of, of a sentence when I pray silently and getting up and doing something that I forgot to do. You, you won't do that if you say it out loud. If you're talking out loud, you won't stop, okay? You'll continue on with this rhythmic, right? This rhythmic prayer before God. So it's a good habit to get into. And he said, the Father, the hour has come. Isn't that a familiar phrase? Six times he's mentioned in John's gospel. Jesus kept talking about his hour. At the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, his mother said, hey, do this trick, right? He said, woman, 
My hour has not yet come. They tried to seize him in the temple, but it said his hour had not yet come. Did anybody watch season three, The Chosen, episode one? He's in Nazareth and they try to take him and throw him off the cliff. And what does he say? It ain't going to happen today. I was wondering how they were going to do that. What a power. I'm having to cry my eyes out watching that. He walks right through the crowd, right? This is my hours, not yet. You can't put your hands on me until I say you can put your hands on me. Until the Father enables you to put your hands on me, you ain't putting your hands on me. And so now Jesus says in this prayer, my hour has come. Why? Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, whenever you see that phrase, eternal life or everlasting life, church, it's typically not speaking of longevity, of ongoing existence. The word is always speaking of a quality of life. So when we say Jesus gives eternal life, we're not talking about duration. We're talking about a quality of existence, okay? And you enter into it now, and then it, it, it continues on after you die in this planet. So it's not quantity of life, though it is certainly that. But when Jesus uses the phrase, he's speaking of a quality. Because listen, everybody in the world has eternal life. Everybody. Listen, everybody in the world will never cease to be. They're, all, they're eternally living in God's presence or eternally separated from God. So every human has eternal life. But not every human has the same quality of life. The quality of one life from one person to another is vastly different. The difference between an, an existence apart from God in hell versus with God in heaven, it's hard to even compare the quality. Everybody will have longevity. Everybody will have quantity. Everybody will not have quality. Jesus uses the phrase eternal life. I'd like to give it to you in Greek. Ionios zoe. And in Greek, it means age abiding life. I've come to give you age abiding life. And that quality begins now, not in the sweet by and by, and it continues on forever. And what is that age abiding life? That includes, by the way, abundant life of John 10, though it's not the exact same reference. He said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. A little bit different reference. He says, I've come to give this to you. What is that? It's having a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. The father right now, listen, the son right now, I should say it this way, wants to, you to engage with the generosity of his father's heart. That's eternal life. And he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I'm, I'm in your text. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me. Watch this. Together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. By now, he's 33 years on this earth. All Jesus has experienced, he's ready to go back home. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's like he can taste it. The glory that he had once before, before the Philippians 2 experience of being empty, poured himself out to the last drop. There was a glory that Jesus shared with the Father. It's something we can only imagine, folks. The closest I probably come to it are the times I went into the slums or the squatter regions of Manila. And in the squatter regions of Manila, uh, it's, it's unlike any place I've seen on earth. And it's right in the middle of this huge, huge city. It looks like the New York City of then of third world existence. And they have these squatter regions. And as soon as you begin to walk down the street, Right, you begin to smell the squalor on the ground. And I remember 
with our team. I'm like, what is that smell? Oh, it's the squatter region that we're walking into. And then you walk through the streets and you see the mud and the plastic sheeting and the pieces of wood and the trash and there's no toilet. So all humans are using all waste there right next to where they sleep, right next to where they live. And the pieces of roof that tend to make the roof. It, everything in that moment is an assault on your senses. And I remember having this thought. I'm walking through this. This is only my experience for a few hours or a few days. These folks live in this day in and day out. Can you imagine leaving the glorious environment of heaven to come down to a squatter region called earth? Can you imagine the assault on the senses of Jesus when he becomes an embryo and makes his way into human existence? Leaving the glories of heaven, growing up in Nazareth and growing up in a poor family from heaven? You talk about a cross-cultural experience? He had the ultimate cross-cultural experience. And he comes to this earth and he lives in this environment. Not only that, but he had to suffer through all the rejection of the very people he came to save, the nation of Israel. And he's facing the cross and he knows what it's going to be like. And so he goes, oh, Father, the time has come. What? Glorify me again, God, with the glory that you and I had together 33 and a half years ago before the world ever was. Now, what is he doing? He's getting in touch with what it's going to be like back home. That's his prayer. By the way, here's just a thought. Jesus only had a few hours to live, right? And he's praying to the Father. It's the longest recorded prayer. What does the Son of God have to say to the Father in the last hours of his life? Like, what would be so important in his heart that he would pray? I think that's the most important thing we can note. If he knows he's about to die, what he's about to pray to the Father is life-changing. Because I would ask you, if you knew you had a few hours to live, what would you be asking God for? What would you be praying for? If God said, you're dying tonight at 6 p.m., I'd be praying, Lord, get me out of this. Stop this from happening. I want more time with my wife. I want more time with my... Deliver me, God, from this hour of suffering and pain. What's on Jesus' mind? What's on His heart? What's coming from His lips? Three things. Verses 1 through 5. He prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. Verses 20 through 26, he prays for you and for me. This prayer is outlined. So in this hour of need, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that glory would be restored, the glory he had with the Father before the world began. Now I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, and I might even say a dumb question. Was Jesus' prayer in verse 1 through 5 answered by the Father? Of course it was. When Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he said he humbled himself, became empty, and then he what? Became a what? Bondservant. Right after that, God highly exalted him and what? Gave him the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. Listen to me. Did the Father answer verses 1 through 5 prayer? Yes, it's called Pentecost. You know why the disciples were unstoppable? Because they knew when the Spirit had been poured out, where was Jesus? He was back in the glory that He had with the Father before the world began. What gave the confirmation that the Son of God was exalted and ascended was the outpouring of His Spirit because He could not pour out His Spirit until He received it from the Father and He couldn't receive it from the Father until He sat down next to His dad. And so when the disciples received the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2, there's no stopping them now. Why? Because Pentecost speaks of the ascension of the living Christ. Pentecost gives glory to the exalted one, Jesus. 
So when Stephen is dying the martyr's death in Acts 7, he's sitting up next to the tree. Just before he dies, you remember what he sees? He looks up to heaven just like Jesus did in John 17. And Jesus is doing what? He's standing at the right hand of God. He saw him in his exalted space and place and he smiles even while he's being pelted with rocks and he prays for his own. I have manifested your name to the men you've given me out of the world, Jesus said. They were yours and you've given them to me. And they have kept your word. Wow. Did you see that in your Bible? Have you ever thought of yourself as a love gift given by God the Father to Jesus the Son? Now, now I want you to focus in with me right here for a moment, church. Father, he said, you've given them to me. When you received Christ, what happened? Well, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, when I received Christ, I gave my life to Jesus. True, you did. But something else happened at the exact same moment you gave your life to Jesus. You know what it was? The Father gave you to Jesus as a love gift. The Father looked at His Son and said, Hey, Craig belongs to you, Jesus. You, you, you paid the price. He's yours. Keep Him forever. He's my gift to you. You are the love gift of the Father to the Son at your moment of salvation. He's my gift to you. I want to share that because have you ever had people scorn you? Who do you think you are? What do you think you are, God's gift to the world? You answer them and tell them, no, I don't think I'm God's gift to the world, but I know that I'm God's gift to Jesus. Now, if you say that to somebody, you're not God's gift to the world, you're God's gift to Jesus. That's the truth, baby Ruth. God gave you to Jesus as a love gift. Now, what we're getting into here, and I don't want to belabor it because we've done it on a number of occasions, and I know your minds are there. We're getting into the divine mysteries of sovereign election and divine predestination versus human volition. Let me talk briefly. You know what that means, right? God has selected you. He's chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. But at the same time, you had something to do with it. So you were not an innocent bystander just being swept up. You had to choose volition to follow Jesus. Salvation and a human is a combination of both God's pre-choice and your choice in real time. And it's both. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. John 15, remember what he said? You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Even though you read that you chose to follow him, they made the decision to leave their nets and follow Jesus. It was their choice, but he said it was his choice. So was it their choice or was it his choice? Or was it both of their choices? Let me just, without getting into too much depth and losing our time together, you'll find that the Lord Jesus Christ will often in a verse, even one verse, combine both truths. And it will make theological students mad. Okay? Okay, he will combine both truths. So he'll say you're picked before the foundation of the world and then you chose to follow Christ. You'll have reference where the Bible gives the command to repent and believe the gospel or come to me all who are heavy and, and, and heavy laden and burdened. Or if any man thirsts, let him what? Come to me, that's the choice of the human. Let him drink, he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow what? Rivers of living water. That all speaks to human volition, human choice. All of those appeal to personal choice. At the same time, and sometimes in the same verse, it will say that God picked you. God gave you to the Son. It was pre-engaged. And so you kind of want to scratch your head or find somebody to argue with. Let me suggest something to you, okay? Don't do that because we got enough of that going on. 
So here's what the Calvinists will do. The Calvinists will put all of its eggs on that God chose you. You sovereignly predestined and pre-elected. The Arminian or the free willer will put all the eggs on you have to make a choice and it's your decision. And the, the truth of the matter is, can I just say what Jesus sought to harmonize, we dare not polarize? So if Jesus throughout his whole ministry is harmonizing truths and we then take it and polarize it, we're doing the opposite of the Spirit of Christ. So here is Jesus communicating to them, engaging with them, what God has joined together, let no, as the preacher said at the wedding, let no man separate, and both of those truths be truth. He selected you before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, but then there came a time where God appealed to your choice. We call it prevenient grace, and you said yes to him, and both of those are evident in Scripture. So you can argue with it. You can wrangle over it. Can I just suggest something? Maybe you need to start enjoying it. Can you just enjoy it for a moment? What I'm told again over again in the Bible is that he picked me and you to be on his team. And I read the end of the book, his team wins. He overcome death, hell, and the grave. So I'm just going to enjoy it. I've wrangled over it, wrestled over it, argued about it. I'm just like, I'd rather enjoy it while you argue about it. How's that? Look at verse 7. Now they have known, watch this, that all things which you've given me are from you, for I've given to them the words you've given me, and they've received them, and watch this, have known surely that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. Did you hear what Jesus said? I gave them your words. I feel that's the utmost priority of what spiritual leaders and pastors do, is they give people God's word. Craig, why do y'all have a Bible study every time you get together as a dwelling place community? I've been to churches before. We had like worship gatherings all the time. No, no word. We worship, then we just pray. Then we worship, then we pray again. Why in the world? What's the point of the culture here? Of, because Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you want to grow in your faith, don't close your Bible and pray for faith. Open your Bible and develop your faith. Open your Bible and engage God in his word. The more you expose yourself to God's holy word and by God's grace implement it, you will be changed from glory to glory. You will grow in faith. So we receive his word. Look at verse 9. I pray for them, but I don't, do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that we may be one, notice this, or they may be one as we, you and I, Father, are one. Watch this. 209 times in your New Testament, the little phrase world is used. In this passage, 26 verses, God says the word world nine times. Okay? Actually, I'm sorry, 12 times in references to the world. You're not in the world, but not of the world. You're in the world, but not of the world. I've taken you out of the world. I'm sending you into the world. He uses the word world. Now, what does that mean? Okay? I'm going to give you the three definitions of the word world in the New Testament. The word world is the word Greek word cosmos. We get in English cosmology from it, okay? Now, there's a different, few different ways to look at the word world, okay? Sometimes the Bible speaks of the world of creation. God created the world. Think of this text, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in them. He's speaking of the creation or the universe. That's not how it's used in John 17. He's not speaking about, okay, because the Bible does not say love the world, neither the things in the world. He's not saying don't love your environment. 
He's not saying hate the plant when you go outside. He's not saying hate the tree, hate the world around you. That's not what world he's referring to in John 17, okay? That's the first way the word world is used, though. It's the physical world. Here's the second way the word world is used in Scripture. It's the world of humanity, or we would call men. When Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he did not die for plants. He did not die for plateaus and steeps. He did not die for Grand Canyon. He died for humans. And when he says world here, he's not talking about physical creation. He's talking about the world of humanity. That's the second way the word world is used, okay? It's humans. He's not saying don't love people, don't love the environment, whatever you do. But there's a third way, and it's the most frequent way the word world is used in Scripture. And it's not physical world, cosmos, and it's not humans, world. It is world, let me define it for you. The ordered system of worldly thinking and values that are around you. That's the way Jesus uses the word world. The word cosmos means an arranged order. If you go through uh, foundation phase, you'll get katartizo, where Jesus, by his invisible word, frames the ages or eons or existence. So this world is the arranged order where Satan is called the God of this world. And there are human beings in earth and on our planet and even leadership in America who are part of that system and don't love the God. They hate God. They don't love Christians. They don't love godly values. That's the world you and I are in and we are not to love that system. So we're living in a cosmos physical world surrounded by a human world world that is endued with a spiritual worldview world. So for the example we have, I don't even know if they have it on TV anymore. I guess they don't. But when I was a kid, they had the wide world of sports. Okay? Okay, it's like decades ago, right? It doesn't mean there's a planet out in the galaxy that's called sports that is revolving around the sun in its own world. Now, I know a lot of men would like to go live on that planet. But it means a, an arranged system of sport values, people who love them, wide world values of sports. And all of their life are arranged around those sports values. So when Jesus speaks of the world, I've taken you out of the world. He's saying, I'm taking you out of the world system. I'm not taking you out of the physical world. And I'm not taking you out of relationship with humans. I'm taking you out of a system of value. I've delivered you from this way of thinking. Now let's read down to verse 14, verse 12. I'm, I'm in verse 12. Let's go to thir- uh, 14. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition. Son of perdition is Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Watch this. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, not of the world's systems, just as I'm not of the world's systems. Look at me, church. That is the occupational hazard of following Jesus. Listen, every occupation has its hazards. If you, it hazards. If you work on telephone poles, there's the hazards of getting splinters or falling down. Oh, what, that beautiful 32-year-old man with four kids, right, in Noonan, FaceTime his daughter two nights ago. He was a lineman, right, and he went out and worked on the linemans, and the tree hit him in the head and killed him. It's just so tragic, right? And that is the occupational hazard of being a lineman. Every occupation has a hazard, okay? The occupational hazard of being a Christian is that the world system is going to despise you. Welcome it. 
The occupational hazard of following Jesus is they're going to hate you. They're not going to like you. You're going to be persecuted. So what does Jesus pray for them? Look at verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Please, 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 please notice that Jesus does not pray a prayer of escapism. He didn't say, Father, the world's bad. You and I both know it. They're going to find out soon enough. It's so bad, Father. They're going to need a cave to hide in and a place to store their canned goods in America. And they need to get all their ammunition and their well bubbler to keep them warm on cold nights and to insulate from the world and to get as far away from the world as possible and to not have engagement with the world because the world's out to get them. He does not pray that they would escape the world. In fact, he says, I took you out of the world, but I'm sending you right back into the world. Watch this. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. Look at verse 18. As you, Father, have sent me into the world, I have now sent them into the world. Now compare that with what you just read in that verse. Verse 18 with verse 6. Verse 6 says, I've manifested your name in them to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They kept your word. Now he says, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. Church, this is how it works. Jesus saves you out of the world system. He saves you out of the mess of your past. He cleans off the mess around you and He cleans out the mess that's within you. Then He shoves you right back into the mess and He sends you right back into the world. You go, that's not very nice. Oh, it actually is very, very nice. Why? It's very, very nice because how are those other worldlings, those people out there going to know the Savior unless through your life that He sends you into? So He'll take you out of the world. He'll clean you up. He'll get rid of the mess. He will transform your life. He will form His character in you and He'll send you back into the mess. We call it what? Impartation or multiplication phase. But this time when you go back into the world, you go with a message. And when you speak the message to the people in the mess, it's an incentive for them to get out of their mess. It's an incentive for them that there can be a new reality. You, They can live a different life. And it's just a trickle-down evangelism That's the way it's worked from the time of Jesus to the time of now. And it should not be edited or reformed in any way. It's the gospel. We now go back into the world. As the Father sent Jesus, He's now sending us. So Craig, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. When Jesus asked them to pray the disciples' prayer, Jesus clearly wants His followers to be more concerned with God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven than it is getting us off of earth into heaven. Jesus has a desire for incarnation, not evacuation. He's not interested in taking you off of the planet. He's not interested in insulating you from bad, ungodly bosses. He is not interested in that. That is not his desire. That's not his point. He's not interested in you being living in a Christian neighborhood with Christian neighbors. I hear people say, I wish I had a Christian neighborhood and all my neighbors are Christian. I'm like, honey, that sounds like heaven. That's not for right now. Okay? You're here on the earth to be a gospel witness. You only got one life to live. You can't witness and evangelize to people in that coming kingdom. 
but you can in this kingdom. So watch this, watch this, and I want, you to, I want you to hear this. Our relationship with the world is that the world needs us, but let me throw something else at you. You actually need the world. Years ago, when codfish, anybody ever eat codfish? Okay, I won't talk about food anymore, okay? Codfish as an industry in the Pacific Northwest was getting big and people wanted to export it all over the country. So they decided they would take and kill the fish, of course, and then freeze the fish and send it to locations in Marietta, New York City. The problem is that codfish, y'all know this, is a delicate fish and it loses its flavor when it's frozen and shipped. So you know what they did in the late 90s? They tried something else. They took the codfish and sent it alive in trucks, in tanks, in seawater and preserved it. Well, then they killed it, and it served it on the plates. The problem was, this happened for two years, the, by the time the fish got to the East Coast and into the market, they were not firm anymore. They were really mushy. So they finally figured out what's wrong, and they started shipping containers of codfish, and they put in the containers the codfish's natural enemy called the catfish. So those poor little codfish are being chased all across the United States, across from the Pacific Northwest to whatever restaurant they landed into, and it kept them firm and tasty. Here's my point. If you are in the world, but not in the word, you're going to become like the world. But listen to me, and you need to hear me. If you are in the word and not in the world, you're going to get fat and sassy, and you're going to be mushy, and ain't nobody going to take a bite out of your life. You need natural enemies and resistance to keep you alive. You need a roaring lion that's trying to eat your family. You need a roaring lion that's trying to come after your kids to keep you on your knees. You need a catfish in your life that's constantly resisting the effort of God in your heart and life. Why? It's what keeps you tasty. It's what keeps you firm. It's what keeps your life full of salt. It's what keeps you in a place. The, listen, listen to me. You need a little bit of chasing. You need a little bit of resistance. You need a little bit of challenge. And when you go, man, I don't know why God would give me this job, man. This boss hates Christians, right? And I remember in my life thinking that. They seem to attack me. They're your catfish, man. What strengthened my faith and made my witness bold and my rebuttals pure is getting around people who constantly criticize you. Listen, the world needs you, but in a sense, I think the Christians need the world more than the world needs the Christians. That's what keeps us salty. That's what keeps us distinguished. But you can see that the tendency for Christians for years has been anything but that. So I'm going to give you four bad ways Christians react, and we'll finish out this passage. One of the tendencies of Christians has been to isolate. Isolate. The monastic movement started this way. Let's isolate the Christians from all the worldly people, from a worldly environment. Let's get them alone. Let's get them in the monastery. Let's just sit in a nice place where they can sing nice songs together, hear pleasant things together. They don't have to go back to the world. Okay? And I haven't even met Christians, again, who say, like, man, I just wish I lived with every single neighbor who loved Jesus. Right? That's not the earth. You need to get chased around a little bit. Here's a second response Christians have had through the years is to insulate. So we have isolate, then we have the second, which is insulate. Now, this is the approach of the Pharisees. Do you know when a Pharisee walked down the streets in Jerusalem, they would hold their robes up tight to them and they would put their heads down so they wouldn't have to look at a pagan and they would dare not let a pagan touch their robes. They didn't want to get cooties. They didn't want to get defiled. They would literally pray, thank God I'm not like a woman or a Gentile. That's what they prayed every morning. 
They just walked and held their robes tight and rushed through the streets. They were what? Insulated. We call these Christian subcultures. They didn't do evangelism, of course. There's nothing to attract an unbeliever to that. They looked down at people. They mocked people who did evangelism. What did they say to the Lord? He eats with what? Tax collectors and evil, wicked men. I can't believe he hangs out with those people. Well, like codfish, got to hang out with the catfish because in a spiritual economy, that's how catfish can be converted into codfish. So what did he do? He hung out with tax collectors and other catfish. He didn't isolate and he didn't insulate. That's not good approaches to the world system around you. Here's a third approach most American Christians use. They vegetate. So this is a believer who's just completely apathetic. People are going to hell every day around them. At least I'm not. At least I'm not going to hell. No passion to share their faith. They're not insulated or isolated, but they vegetated in their spiritual couch potatoes and winning nobody to Jesus, not engaging relationally with anybody who's lost. There's another response that I find troubling, and that is to imitate the world. So we don't isolate. We don't insulate. We don't vegetate. And we don't what? We don't imitate. Just be like them, okay? I'll speak to the younger generation, the Gen Zers over here. Try to prove to the worldly people that you're just as cool as them. Look, man, I'm hip. I'm just as hip as you. The world don't need hipness. Hipness leads to disaster, right? The world needs godliness. And so you can't win somebody to something that is not different than who they are. You've got to be distinguished and different in order to win them to something different than the systems they're a part of. So clearly, Jesus' solution is not to isolate, insulate, vegetate, or imitate. His solution is to permeate. To permeate. What does that mean? I'm not going to, ta- I'm going to take you out of the world. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to take the mess off of you. And then I'm going to put you right back into the world. So that what? You can permeate the world around you with your Christ-like thinking, behavior, and presence. Isn't that what Jesus did? You are the salt of the earth. What does salt do, folks? It decontaminates meat. Does salt have to touch the meat to decontaminate the meat? Yes, you have to touch dead meat. You got to touch dead people. You got to engage with people that are far from God. You have to, as light, enter into the darkness. That's his plan. I send you out like sheep among the wolves. But I got good news for y'all because I'm looking across this front row even. And I'm looking in this middle section. I'm looking at a lot of ex-wolves here this morning who are now God's sheep because other people were sent into your life and had the boldness to stay decontaminated and love you still and had the boldness to hold you to a higher standard and declare God's truth to you without imitating what you did, right? And so for their sakes, I'm going to finish out Luke verse 19. He said, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified by your truth. Now verse 20, and I'm going to finish to the end. Read it with me. I don't pray for these alone. That's his, these disciples, these immediate followers. But I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. We're reading the testimony of one of those followers tonight. They wrote Matthew. They wrote John. They'll write First and Second Peter. Second John, Third John. They'll give their testimony, right? They're, the gospel baton's going to be passed down. He's praying for you. Jesus was praying for you then. You must know Jesus is praying for you now. I want to say this, church. Do you know that Jesus' work is not finished? You go, that's heresy, Craig. It's not heresy. The cross, he's finished with the work of salvation, but he started a second work on his ascension. It's called the work of intercession. And he's still working every day. Jesus' work is not finished. The Bible says in chapter 7, he ever lives to make intercession for you. 
I just want you to think for a moment. Jesus prays for you. I want you to think about that. I remember several years ago, I was in Atlanta speaking in the Georgia Dome for an event called the One Body Campaign. And I got to spend the whole day with Jason Upton, who was my literal hero of the faith. And I'm sitting backstage of the Georgia Dome. And before I get up to go preach the altar time, I remember Jason said, just sitting next to me, he said, I want to pray for you and your message tonight. So he prayed, and I'm thinking to myself, Jason Upton's praying for me. It's going to be awesome because if he prays, I'm going to speak with some firm authority. That's what I was thinking. And as soon as I got done praying with him, I turned and walked out into the arena, and I heard the Lord speak to me and said, Greg, do I count? Jesus is praying for you. Jesus. And he prays for you by name before the Father. He ever lives right now at the right hand of God to represent you as your attorney and to pray for you. He prayed for you then. John 17, you read it, and he's praying for you now. He worked for you then, and he is working for you now. Verse 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be me perfect in one, and that the world may know that you sent me, watch this, and have loved them as you love me. Whoever's playing keys, you can come. Now watch this. Jesus looks to the future, and he prays for us. And he prays specifically one thing. You Did you catch it? That we would be unified and we would be one. Now, it is tempting to read this and kind of cock our heads sort of and say, well, that's a prayer that I don't think was answered, Pastor Craig. Because if I'm not mistaken, I read my Bible and all those disciples got into arguments a lot. They were arguing who's going to be the greatest. So I'm going to check that as evidence that Jesus' prayer was not answered right here. And by the way, I recall guys like Paul and Barnabas were at each other's throat in the book of Acts. The argument got so strong, they parted each other's company. They couldn't even hang out. They had to break fellowship with one another. They couldn't get along. And I've looked around at all the different denominations, and I hear Christians and how they talk smack about each other from one town to the next. So where's the love, bro? I told a group of pastors this week, I said, listen, you know that Ephesians 6, spiritual warfare and the spiritual armor was given by God to us not to fight other Christians, right? It was given to to us by God to fight the devil and his demons and worldly values. Here's what I want you to know. Watch this. Unity is not something you produce. It's something you already have. What do you mean, Craig? Whether you enjoy it or not, you've got it. Galatians 3, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And he says whether you experience it, believe it, or know it, it's already yours. So listen to me. Did God answer his prayer? He did. Did the Father answer his prayer? He did. He absolutely did because unity. Listen, Ephesians 4, it's a done fact. He says one body, one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. Unity does not mean uniformity. 
It does not mean we're all to agree on everything. Oh, there's no unity. We think differently. No, that's what humans do. human beings do. Listen, if you get two people that think alike about everything, one's not thinking. We have differing opinions. We don't have to think the same things. There's room for disagreement. I would dare say that out of everybody in this room, all of the cardinal doctrines of the faith you and I agree on, but I bet there are people in this room that differ with me on my eschatology my view of in things. I bet there's people in this room right now that are not as solid as I am theologically in a pneumatology, in understanding of what the Spirit's role. But having said that, we are still one. And the Bible says in Ephesians 4, we're to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we should be people trying to reconcile, trying to build bridges, not trying to separate people. We should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because the world will know that you've sent me. A divided church can't reach a divided world. A unified church reaches a divided world. And Jesus prays for them. He's thinking of the impact of those future believers on the world around them. And he knows if there's unity among my church that it will make the church attractive to the unbeliever. A church in turmoil, what unbeliever wants to go visit that? They fight all the time. Man, I'm going to go there. I just love conflict. I don't have enough conflict in my workplace right now. I'm going to go to church that just is full of conflict. And then to close the prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be we, may be with me where I am. That's heaven. That's the Father's house. That they may behold my glory with you, which you've given me for you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I've known you, and these have known you that you sent me. And I've declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. He prays for unity and then he prays for glory. Not for himself. He prays glory for you that will be in heaven with him. Look at me. Look at me. Every time a believer dies, Jesus' prayer in John 17 is answered. Every time a son or a daughter of God perishes, this life, Jesus' prayer is answered again. Why? Because they're ushered into glory. And that's what he prayed, that they may be with me as you and I are one. Interesting that he prays about heaven right after he prays about unity on earth because when we lose our focus of heaven, we start fighting on earth. We start fighting down here on earth. But church, if we this fast can keep our focus on heaven, it balances out all the disagreements we have on earth. It tends to take the sting away from the battle. Because I look, I go, you know what? I'm going to have to spend forever with you. That's a long time. Zach, i got to spend forever with you, brother. I mean, you're going to be sharing heaven with me, brother. Popped up on my phone last night, you and your sister and your other sister, Desiree, about 11 years ago. I showed you the picture, right? And I was laying in my bed last night looking at that picture, and I thought, man, that dude was away from God, foolish, darkened heart, not knowing God's hope. His forgiveness, but he what? He rescued you. And Jesus' prayer in John 17 is, man, I pray that they're one. They may be with me. I've declared to them your name and would declare it that the love which you love me may be in them. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. 
If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.